Hello and welcome to Drinking Matters. In this episode, we look at how important public houses were to the local economy and what provisions they supplied. One of the more neglected areas of research on public houses it is its uh, or is their economic importance, their significance for livelihoods of people at the time. We see them as convivial and as perhaps disorderly establishments, but the sheer number of people they kept in work is, is actually pretty astounding. Every public house had perhaps uh, one to three servants at least. They were sometimes members of the family, but often they were taken on as as labourers and therefore even in small to medium-sized territories you find literally thousands and thousands of people making a living from selling alcohol and this is perhaps one of the largest employers outside the dominant agricultural section sector of that time so of of enormous uh, economic importance so we've already touched upon their importance for state state finance in terms of indirect taxation now we see them as major providers of livelihoods and we see them as uh, a chance to make uh, a prosperous and actually a quite comfortable living for some of the more successful publicans. Many of them sold literally thousands and thousands of litres of alcohol a year, allowing them to get profits of, of several hundreds, if not thousands, of labourers' day wages simply from selling drink. That's without actual income from accommodation and meals which is much more difficult to quantify because it wasn't taxed to the same extent and not recorded to the same extent. So as economic assets they are considerable also because the premises in which they operated are comparatively worth more than um, similar premises without licensed premises. You can only gain a certain amount of money for an urban dwelling, but if it has additionally the right to sell alcohol, you would uh, be able to sell the same sort of property for a much higher price, and that again uh, offered uh, lots of commercial opportunities. Public houses were supplied from a number of different sources. Many of them were, to a large degree, self-sufficient. Many could rely on foods produced in their agricultural holdings. Many were operating in areas of viticulture, where wine was produced by themselves or by their neighbours. So this would simply be a case of serving local produce or personal product to your customers. But then in many other cases that was not possible and publicans had to go to the market uh, to provide themselves with drinks and it's astounding how far they went. We often have evidence of French Champagne or Spanish Malaga wine stocked in even market town taverns of the period. So there is a large amount of cross-cultural, cross-European trade going on in terms of supplying people with alcohol. Um, at the time. What becomes conspicuous in areas like England is the ever-growing importance and significance of commercial breweries who are buying up properties, who are tying these properties to their particular brands or products and therefore exercise a disproportionate power over the trade. But in other areas of Europe this is uh, as yet less, less conspicuous and we still find the sort of individual entrepreneur in charge and in control of his or her operations. 
It's difficult to find a lot of information about servants and employees in public houses because they're often of a social status where none, no personal records survive from them. We know from uh, incidental information that perhaps uh, uh, working in a pub was not a particularly lucrative form of employment. You would normally get a lot of uh, revenue in kind. You would be um, you know, given a room to stay in. You would be fed and you would be able to drink, of course, on the premises. But uh, in terms of cash revenue, we're talking very humble wages um, being paid. But it's it's a job which could be taken on in addition, for instance, to agricultural employment or an uh, occasional town employment. So it was something that could complement uh, rather low income and would therefore uh, be welcome. But this is an area where we do still have a large of dark areas and uh, where major new research will be very welcome indeed. The impact of war on the trade is ambivalent. On the one hand, trade, of course, disrupts operations. It may stop people from attending. It may create social divisions. It may make people less likely or less able to socialize in a, in a, in a local drinking establishment. That's certainly true. On the other hand, we know that the Thirty Years' War, which... Um, affected a lot of Central Europe in the early 17th century, also helped to promote new fashions and new types of drinks. Brandy and spirits were circulated through the preference of the various soldiers and mercenaries who traveled around all these areas and took their um, drinks preferences with them, spread them into areas that they previously weren't known as. In terms of uh, taxation income, we often find that during periods of major crises like wars, public houses actually increased their share of public finance generation because it was one of the few um, areas of the economy that kept going, uh, an area that authorities were keen on promoting because they knew that um, resources could be gained through the sale of wine and um, other um, services on the premises. So it's an ambivalent impact. It can help spread new consumer goods, it can lead to disruption and economic hardship, but it can also generate additional income for the authorities in a time of great disruption. If we try to find out what was actually drunk on the premises, then we face the problem that none of these uh, drinks, of course, have uh, survived. We occasionally find a recipe or we occasionally find a description in the sources. We occasionally can calculate alcohol content. And if we bring all this evidence together, it looks very much as if uh, alcohol on the whole was less... Um, in terms of uh, volume um, than we would expect it today. There was a lot of small watered-down beer available, lots of complaints about wine being tampered with. So on an average um, sort of um, level, I'd say that alcohol was probably weaker than it is today, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily less varied because even in humble um, establishments, they would let customers choose between perhaps two local products and perhaps something that one additionally buys in from the market. In the major market town inns or in the big capitals of European trade, wine sellers would be very differentiated indeed. You would have 
um, brands imported from Spain, Italy and France. You would have beer imported from different areas of uh, northern and eastern Europe. You would have uh, increasing selection of spirits, brandies and gin. And by the late 17th century, gradually hot beverages such as tea and coffee making their entry into the world of the tavern. So depending on what you could afford and depending on where you actually went, you could uh, either have a very limited sort of two or three choices or you could indeed have almost a wine menu to choose from. But once you would see it on your table, you would probably find it is slightly less um, powerful than um, alcohol um, that uh, are available commercially today. Food was very important simply uh, because many people didn't have their own kitchen facilities at the time. Many people who worked away from home during the whole day needed a meal at lunchtime. Sometimes that was provided by their employers. At other times they had to frequent cookshops or um, public houses to do so. And this was a major um, economic uh, consideration because food uh, was uh, a major form of expenditure. If we look at a full-scale ill menu, this could have been easily one or two day wages uh, for a laborer. So that sort of level of food provision could only be afforded by by social elites. But there was a network of um, flexible, temporary takeaway cookshops that would sell um, very low uh, amounts and very sort of um, perhaps basic types of, um, of, of roasts and um, seasonal vegetables to um, for consumption um, by people of lower social groups. The typical type of food provision at the time in the sort of larger inns was a so-called double dort or ordinary um, menu which would be uh, uh, several uh, dishes presented in several courses um, for the same price for all people who were having dinner at the time. So it was a very sort of standardized, very inflexible type of provision, but often very, very elaborate in terms of uh, the number of courses and the number of dishes being served. So that was the sort of standard type of in-menu, but as we go forward in time, I think the alternatives to that sort of standard provision become more prominent with uh, smaller, uh, more economic menus being available, choices between meat-based and fish-based menus, uh, then perhaps provisions uh, that you could order in advance, provisions that could be selected uh, from uh, an available um, menu of the day. So I think the sort of general trend certainly in, in the better establishments is to allow patrons a greater deal of flexibility and choice about the foods that they're eating. We still have what is called the sort of French uh, style of dining in the early modern period, the sort of Russian type of dining or gastronomic culture which is then uh, coming in from the late 18th, early 19th century with individual plates presented to individual diners is as yet fairly uncommon in, in the world of the sort of uh, conventional European inn. What is conspicuous wherever is the prominence of local produce. You would in Scotland uh, expect to find a lot of salmon, a lot of 
uh, of game and wild uh, produce. In Bavaria, you would have a lot of sausages and what they call noodles, which is a sort of a type of pasta. Uh, base dish in Switzerland. There's a lot of confectionery and, and sweets available to to finish a menu. So travelers will very much feel where they are at a given point of time. Also in terms of their drinks provision in the Mediterranean southern countries, they would have predominantly wine. In the northern eastern European countries, they would find beer and ale. The dominant drink in terms of cooking techniques it would be very much butter based in northern countries of europe it would be oil based cooking in uh, mediterranean world so it was a regionally diversified uh, cuisine which could be particularly basic in a sort of standard uh, rather basic environment but could be fairly sophisticated in the top range ends of the period the three kings in basel for instance offered uh, elite patrons a dining terrace with gold crockery and with a table fountain in which fish were actually swimming for the entertainment of the patrons uh, where the food was um, very diversified where you could have menus at different prices and the top range uh, literally left nothing to be desired when it comes to judging the quality of food and development of particular food preferences, then we have the sort of colonial overseas expansion of Europe enriching um, the sort of diet, uh, particularly of elite households from the um, 17th and 18th centuries in particular. I mean, things like maize, like potato, um, like uh, tomatoes, in fact, would become more prominent as we go forward in time. And uh, there would be, particularly in trading centers, an expectation that goods could be found in the best establishments, even if they weren't locally produced. So by the end of the early modern period, a publican would have been even more active in the market trying to, I don't know, provide strawberries um, for people who just wanted them even if they perhaps weren't actually in season uh, at the time or trying to uh, stock coffee and tea when elite patrons started to make demands of that nature. So the sort of general uh, socio-economic uh, developments in Europe very much filtered through into the world of the public house because um, customer demand made it imperative for the owners of these establishments to um, stay in touch and to modify their um, provisions in, in line with the customer preferences. Mm. Accommodation was uh, equally varied as, as, as food provision. We have, uh, even in the 18th century, still accounts of people sleeping in stables and just on the benches of dining lounges, particularly when an establishment was enormously busy. On the other hand, um, there are sleeping accommodations which are equipped with curtains, with carpets, with cupboards, with individual wash basins, with individual um, types of uh, furnishings, with uh, decorations, with paintings, uh, with um, even game and card facilities. So again, I think it's a matter very much of what you could afford and what you could pay for accommodation, which determined whether you stayed in a sort of dormitory of a very um, basic uh, type of 
a provision or whether you could uh, go for a named room in a leading establishment which uh, have all the creature comforts available at the time. The prices charged for the various services are considerable. Um, it is certainly not true that you could spend all your time drinking. It's often up to a third or even more of a day wage that you have to spend just to buy a measure, a, a litre or one and a half litres of wine. So sociability in the public house was, uh, as the authorities rightly feared, an expensive type of uh, leisure activity and it could not be done to excess without endangering the sort of uh, prosperity of your household. If we go for the very big sort of lavish um, ordinary type meal provision then we're talking really rather large sums of money and a traveller that uh, went across Europe uh, for months on end would spend enormous amounts of money on public house provision. So for most people at the time, public house uh, sociability was something that one did in uh, moderation, at least financially, perhaps uh, hoping for um, special occasions like weddings, rites of passage, seasonal feasts, and only the sort of really established major householders could contemplate going to the public house without any financial worries. Intriguingly, we find publicans actively advertising their services to members of the public from an early age, even uh, from the sort of 14th and 15th century. At that time, advertising took the form of sending out agents uh, into the streets or towards town gates to make arriving visitors aware of the existence of particular establishments, which caused the authorities to censor these publicans, saying that you should wait for your customers, you shouldn't entice them into your promises. But this sort of thing was going on, and then once print became widely available, publicans again used this very early on and very effectively for uh, advertising of, of their various services. Uh, what was particularly typical from the 17th century was the production of trading cards which usually feature a prospect of the premises and then a small piece or a small passage of text where the publican would recommend himself, would um, highlight all the sophisticated services that he or she could provide where perhaps menu prices were indicated, where extra facilities were detailed and then in another corner of the trading card perhaps um, a mention of local sites or transport connections so that a traveller would actually have something to go on and a means to making an informed choice about where to stay. Most uh, premises had to um, display the current laws affecting public houses on the premises so visitors were usually aware of at least the normative uh, rules that uh, governed services in a public house. So they had um, an objective form of um, complaining if these rules were broken. They could go to local officials, they could go to town councillors. But often, particularly in Republican environments, they found that the person who was meant to sanction any offences often actually was the publican that they stayed with in the first place. So Casanova, for instance, when he visited the um, the spa of Baden, was uh, intrigued to find that when he uh, wanted to complain about the high price of a particular service at his local inn, the person he ended up talking to was the publican that he stayed with anyway. So it wasn't a sort of a very easy 
form of complaints procedure, but neither is it today. Um, it's becoming, uh, I suppose, some one of the sort of continuities through the ages that uh, there's a lot of rules and a lot of regulations, but not always a very easy way of actually uh, enforcing customer rights. There is something like a rudimentary gastro discourse emerging in the early modern period. Nothing of the institutionalized variety that we find today in um, in features in Sunday papers or in magazines of all types and sorts, but uh, at least occasional review of gastronomic provision from the 15th century emerges in travel reports where people who have experience of different regions and of different types of establishments pass on judgment about how good they were, what kinds of crockery they used, whether they used any fresh ingredients, etc., etc. And from the later 17th century, there are functional travel guides which um, feature particular journeys and comment on the provision of public houses along the way, providing something of a neutral, if still rudimentary, form of uh, critique, gastro-critique, which allows people to at least identify one or two places per um, major town where they may find what they are looking for and what they need at the time. Dr. Kumin's book, Drinking Matters, Public Houses and Social Exchange in Early Modern Central Europe, is now available. This podcast was produced for the University of Warwick by Tom Abbott. The music was written and performed by Sean and Dylan Owen. <laughs> <laughs>